Take your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 6. Um, it's our annual time for the Be Rich sermon, and we'll explain that in just a moment. If you're new to First Baptist, if you're not, you may be already cringing a little bit of what's coming here in a few minutes. Um, but it's our annual time to talk about generosity, and we do that through um, uh, a concept called Be Rich. And again, we'll explain that from First Timothy in just a moment. But I was thinking this week about um, how we evaluate people, how we evaluate progress, um, that, that in every kind of facet of life, we do some sort of evaluation to know whether we're growing, whether we're succeeding, whether we're accomplishing what we need to accomplish. And when I think about all of that, so for instance, this week, our kids got progress reports. And so um, Sumner County Schools progress reports are out. And the normal way that most of us remember getting evaluated were A, B, C, D, F, never understand why we didn't get E's, but we got F's, right? So we remember that, but in, uh, at least for my girls, that's no longer how they are evaluated. So they don't get A, B, C, D's, F's. Many of your kids may be the same way, but we get one, two, threes, fours. We get um, just progress. And so instead of giving a B in English, they may get eight grades in English about how they're meeting those standards. They're evaluating the kids on whether or not they're accomplishing their goals. Maybe in your work environment, you have evaluations where you have certain goals that you have to meet. Maybe it's a sales quotient. Maybe it's a it's a mark, a target that you're you're striving for. Um, even in just in life in general, you know, at our house, I'm sure many of you at your houses, we have a doorpost to one of the kids' rooms that has pencil marks along the along the doorpost measuring how tall our kids are, right? Does anybody have that around their house where they measure their kids? All right, so we're measuring our kids. Now, my boys are on one door, and the girls want to be on another door because they don't like competing with the boys' height, right? My boys are tall, so they like to, you know, do that. And so we're always looking for evaluation. So here's the question. How do we evaluate our spiritual life? How do we evaluate whether we're growing, whether we're maturing, whether we're meeting the the requirements of what it means to follow Jesus? What are the evaluation tools that we can use? Well, when I was growing up, my church growing up, and some maybe some of you grew up in this kind of tradition as well, there was a very kind of, um, it was an unspoken way, but it was a known way to evaluate. There was a list of do's and don'ts that nobody ever published, but we all knew them. And so when you were growing up in my youth group, when you got saved, you began to follow Jesus, that meant eliminating certain things from your life and doing other certain things. So if you were a guy and you had long hair and you got saved, you had to get that cut. Right? Had to dress a certain way, had to talk a certain way, couldn't use certain words at all, couldn't drink, smoke, chew. That was a big deal back where I was, chewing. Couldn't go with girls that do, right? I mean, there were, there were rules that you had to follow. Things that you had to do. And if you met those criteria, boy, wow, I'm telling you, he dressed sharply. He's, you know, he's, he's, he keeps his hair cut, you know, his face clean shaven. Not anymore, but I did, all right? Like, you remember, like, the man, he, you know, he's always at church. He's at church every time doors open and, and I, he's not out on weekends partying. He's not doing that stuff. Man, he must really be on fire for the Lord. Like, it was an external evaluation. Or maybe you grew up in a, a tradition, in a denomination where it was, there was an experience that came. And the way, the way that you measured whether or not you were growing spiritually was, have you had the experience? Have you experienced that? Did the blessing come? Is that what happened? Or maybe it was a, a list of rules that your specific church had. 
And what's interesting, when you look in scriptures, those aren't really there. There's not really evaluation marks that say, if you're a follower of Jesus, these are the list of things you don't do. But there is something in scripture that's spoken of many times that is a good evaluation tool for us. That can tell us if we're maturing in the faith. The mark that you have experienced the gospel, the mark that you're growing in your faith, the mark that you're maturing is how generous you are. The love of God produces in us a love for other people and generosity that flows from that. In fact, John 15, 12 through 13 says this, this is my commandment. By the way, you may know where John 15 is in the story of Jesus. What's going on in his life in John 15? That's good. Somebody else. This is the upper room discourse. This is right before he is going to go to the Mount of Olives and pray and be arrested and then crucified. And so this is an important moment. He's talking to his disciples and he says, this is my command. Love one another as I have loved you. Now, for them, they realized he had loved them. They had seen them. He had taught them. He had walked with them. He had helped them. He had guided them. But they had no idea the depth of the love he was going to show them in the coming 24 hours. In fact, he kind of gives them a glimpse of that. He says, no one has greater love than this to lay down his life for his friends. The idea is that you are to love others as I have loved you, is what Jesus says. The mark that you experience the gospel, the mark that you are growing in your faith, the mark that you are maturing in how you live, is how generous you are towards other people. How much you invest in others. John would write later in his epistle, 1 John, that we know that we have passed from death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. He says, if you're not loving other people, if you're not generous with your life, if you're not generous with your love, you're not generous with your talent, you're not generous with your treasure, you have to question whether you're following Jesus at all. It's not about how much you show up. It's not about how much we, 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 we talk to each other here. It's how we treat each other and other people outside of this place. John continues in that first John 3. He says, by this we know love. This is how we even know what love is. That he, Jesus, laid down his life for us. He says, we don't know love because he wrote us a love letter. We don't know love because he gave us carefully articulated doctrines. We don't know love because he gave us a systematic theology. We know love because Jesus died for us. And we, he says, ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. He says, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him. He says, how in the world could we see what Jesus did for us, took pity on us, left heaven, came to earth? How could we see that and then not do the same for our brother, our sister in need? And he ends that little talk in 1 John 3 by saying, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. You see, here's the thing about our Christian faith. It is not just a set of beliefs to hold on to. It's not just something we agree with. It is a lifestyle to be lived. And the best way people can tell that we are following Jesus should be by the way we treat each other and the way we treat the world and by the generosity of our spirit and with what we've been given. So each year at this time, we do a series of message did a series a couple of years ago, do a message each year about the fact that we are rich, that we have been given much, and we are responsible for what God has given us. 
First Timothy chapter 6 is the best place in Scripture. And I tried multiple times this week to go to a different passage of Scripture. Because this is the same passage of Scripture we've looked at for the last couple of years at this time. But it's just so good about what it means and how to live our lives with a generous spirit. And the idea today is not to make us feel guilty because guilty people don't really change. It is people who have their perspective change that change. And so my idea this morning is to look at 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17 through 19 and ask the question, how can we change our perspective based on what it says? And what I want us to do for this day, for this moment, is to separate as much as we can the idea of generosity from just giving to church. Although giving to church is a part of generosity, and we're going to talk about how to do that in a few minutes. But I'm thinking about here something bigger than that. Generosity in lifestyle. Generosity in how we live. Being a generous people. And sometimes people get upset. I don't know if you've heard this or not. Sometimes people get upset when churches talk about money. Well, y'all talk about money too much. That preacher, he talks about money way too much. Just wish he wouldn't talk about money. Or some of you have brought guests today. Maybe you're a guest. You're like, is this what they do every week? They talk about money every week? The answer is no. We talk about it two or three times a year. But the reality is, if you have a problem with a church talking about money two to three times a year, you would have had a big issue with Jesus. And a bigger issue with the Bible. The Bible talks again and again about how we treat our material possessions. Let me just give you some numbers. Hope is mentioned 185 times in the Bible. Faith is mentioned 246 times in the Bible. And love is mentioned 733 times in the Bible. So that's faith, hope, and love. 185, 246, 733. Okay? Somewhere around 1,100 times. Generosity, money matters is mentioned 2,000 285 times in the Bible. And that's because it's important. We're going to talk today about something that I believe is holding many in the American church back from fully living the life God has called us to live. 1 Timothy chapter 6, starting in verse 17. Instruct those who are rich in the present age Again, we talk about this every year, but this is one of those times in Scripture when it's easy for us to look at that and go, Woo! That's not me. Good to know, right? People are, well, I'm glad you're going to preach on this today, Pastor, because I don't have to listen that hard to it, because it's not really about me. But here's the reality. Nobody in America thinks they're rich. Rich is always the level above you. In fact, they ask people who make $30,000 of household income, what income would make you rich? And those people said $75,000. I'd be rich. They asked people that made $75,000, are you rich? And they said, no, I'd need $125,000. And the truth is, when they asked that question, the most commonly given answer in America for what income would make you rich was $120,000. Do you know what group of people said $120,000 would not make you rich? People that make $120,000, they said you'd have to be above 200 to be rich. The problem for most of us is that we don't feel rich, but we are. If you earn, as a household, $30,000 a year, you are in the top 5% worldwide. If you, as a household, make $45,000 a year, 
if you and your, your spouse as a household, maybe your kids are chipping into that, I don't know. If you as a household are making $45,000 a year, you're in the top 1%. You are a one percenter. 99% of the people worldwide make less than you. Bill Gates once visited India and he was in a village talking to people and trying to figure out some ways to bring them relief. And as he walked away, this man behind him that was handling her from another, a man from India walked up to the lady and says, do you know you just met the richest person in the world? And she said, every person I've ever met from the West is rich. She thought that if you would have walked up right behind Bill Gates, she couldn't have told any difference between you and him. Now you can. Amen. And you don't feel rich because you ain't got Gates money. But the truth is, just because we don't feel it doesn't mean we aren't. Some of you in this room, many of you perhaps, have remodeled some part of your house. Try explaining that to a person in another culture. Yeah, it was, yeah, it, was, it worked fine for us. Fully functional. But man, I mean, it was built like in 1995. It's a little, a little outdated. I had to rework that. It wasn't as functional as I needed it to be. Yesterday, in fact, yesterday, we replaced three fully functional fans in our house. Fans that help the already there heating and air conditioning keep us cool in the summer and hot or warm in the winter. Now, imagine explaining that to someone in other parts of the world. Yes, we have a fully operating heating and air conditioning and fans, but we replace them because we, they just, they've been there for a while, and they're like, you mean you don't shiver in the winter? You don't sweat in the summer inside your house? How many of you all went to your homes, you would have leftovers? Right? We got leftovers. I don't want to know the date on some of them, amen? I need to put expiration dates on the leftovers, right? So think about that concept, because when we have leftovers, most of us in this room think, well, we're being frugal. We're saving some money there. We're helping out, right? We're going to keep those for the next day. Can you imagine explaining to someone in most of the world that has a hard time coming up with two good meals a day that you had so much food at your last meal that you've saved it to eat on two or three days? There's a story of a missionary telling stories in other cultures and they talked about a garage at their house. When they lived in the state, they had a garage and they said, what's a garage? So they described it was this place that, you know, next to their home where they parked their cars. And he says, you mean you have a house just for your car? Or what about the proliferation of storage units? Where we keep stuff. That we don't have room for in our house. And you know the craziest thing about that? A lot of those storage units are now heated and air conditioned. We have heating and air conditioning for the stuff we don't want. You know what you call those kind of people? Rich. That's what you call them. Now I'm not saying if you, well, you're, some of you say, oh, that's good. I just have a carport and I don't have a storage unit. And uh, we always eat exactly, we eat everything on our plates. We don't have any leftovers. That's not the point, amen? You're rich. So when Paul gives instructions to rich people, and let me tell you, the instructions everybody got to read, they are the easiest instructions Paul gives to rich people 
in the scripture. In fact, there's this passage I almost, and I told, this, I told, our, uh, I told Jeff and Anne-Marie, we were working through the, what the service would look like this week. I told them I almost preached on a passage, and I thought I was, and I just the Lord wouldn't leave, take me away from this one. But there's a passage in James where James says, all you rich people, be happy with what you have now because it's going away and misery is coming to you. Because you have invested in what's here and you don't have any hope for tomorrow. So some of you get upset when we do the rich people sermon, but this is the easiest rich people sermon we can do. He tells us two things. He says, so those that are rich in this world, tell them not to be arrogant or to set their hope on the uncertainty of wealth, but on God. The first thing he says is, don't find your significance in what you have. Don't put your value on what you have. And it's easy for money to become that evaluation tool in our lives that gives us access to places that other people can't have access to, that helps us to find security in it. Like, we are getting our security in the fact that we have a good savings account built up, our retirement's in great shape, we got the house paid off. We are secure. Paul says, don't be arrogant about that. Don't put your hope in the uncertainty of wealth. He uses an interesting phrase here to say, why would you put your hope, everything you have, your desire, what you are depending on, why would you put that on something that's uncertain, that's untested, that may not last? Don't judge your hopes on that. Here's the reality. The problem with our money, the problem with material possessions, the problem with our stuff is it is a terrible investment. It doesn't last. For some people, the idea of losing their retirement or making a bad investment or having your identity stolen or losing your job, those are devastating thoughts. You don't know how you could go on without it. Or maybe you feel like you're so secure financially, it doesn't matter what comes your way, you're okay. The problem is, it's a terrible investment. The reality is that everything we have is God's in the first place. It's not ours. He has given it to us to take care of for a little while. And my heart goes where I put the money God has given me. So when I begin to spend money on stuff, my heart goes to that. And the problem with that is this is not our home. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, this is a temporary apartment that we have that we don't need to decorate fancily because our true home is with Jesus in eternity. So we live for then, not for now. And even the most secure plan you can come up with financially is not foolproof. I mean, what happens when you get a call from a doctor? Marriage is in trouble. The kids have gone wild. I mean, some of you this week, or some of you are really looking forward to Thanksgiving. I'm really looking forward to Thanksgiving. It's a great time with our family. We love the food, all that. It's a great time. But for some of you in this room, it's not a great time to look forward to because there is dysfunction in your family and things have split apart. And maybe even money was a part of that in some way or some decision was a part of that. What happens then? One writer says this, Money can buy you a $5,000 mattress, but it cannot buy you rest. It can buy you a gorgeous home, but it can't give you a loving home. It can send you on a great vacation, but it can't give you family harmony. It can buy you toys, but not fulfillment. It can send your kids to private school, but not make them wise. It can help you retire comfortably, but cannot give you peace. It's a terrible investment. The second thing is, it's false worship. 
Because you're supposed to put your security and your significance in God, not in your stuff. And I know this is like, I know this is 101, it feels like for church, like he's going to yell at me about my stuff. But the reality is our culture is captivated by our stuff. Money, more than anything else, calls us to find our significance and our security and what we have. Proverbs 18.11 says, The wealth of the rich is in their, is their fortified city. He says, the thing that gives them hope, the thing that gives them security, the thing that gives them protection is their money. And that's not what material things are supposed to do. That's what God is supposed to do. Matthew 6.24 says you cannot serve God and money. And I want to be honest with you, when you think about your life, many of you in this room, most of the major decisions you have made in your life have been based on money. Education, to get a job, to make enough money. Where you bought a house, where you live, where you go to school, where you do that, it's based on how you can make money or how you can spend your money. If you want to be scared, I just want to be honest with you, if you want to be scared, think about the fact, now take... First Timothy and realize we are the rich people, okay? Most of us in this room are rich. And when you take that and then you go to the New Testament, to the Gospels where Jesus talks about rich people, it ought to scare us. Matthew 19, it's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. In Mark chapter 4, Jesus talks about the seed of God's word that falls on soil, that receives it. But then he says, the deceitfulness of riches spring up and choke out the seed of life. Riches are what keep more people from heaven than just about anything else. Doing well. When I was, uh, I've mentioned Brazil. And uh, one of the interesting things is a few years um, later, we started our trips to Porto Seguro. And the first year I went to Porto Seguro, Brazil, um, we went, we, we had three neighborhoods we were targeting. And the three neighborhoods we were targeting were two completely impoverished, um, I mean, just poorest of the poor kind of neighborhoods. And we walked into the poorest of the poor kind of neighborhoods. We would walk up, we'd knock on their door. They would open their door, invite us in, have conversation. I mean, you're talking about humble homes. We're talking about Nine, ten people living in a shack with dirt floors. One of the neighborhoods was near the church where we were working, the Church of Philadelphia. One of the churches was there. And right next to it was a wealthy neighborhood that had a gated community. And in Brazil, in that gated community, you didn't knock on the gate. You stood outside and you (laughs) clapped. We saw shutters being closed. We saw people shut their front door. We had a couple people come talk to us and says, we don't need anything. We're good. And I couldn't help but think of the contrast of those who had absolutely nothing that were unashamed to invite us into their meager homes and hear about the gospel of Jesus. And those that were living in the finest houses in that area who didn't take the time of day to have a conversation with us. Because they thought they had what they need. And the problem is. The richer you get, the more in danger you are. 1 Timothy 6, 9, just a few verses before our main passage we're looking at says, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. And what study after study shows is the more people make, the harder it is for them to give. In fact, percentage-wise, rich people give less than poor people. On average, in America, 
People who make less than $100,000 a year give twice as much percentage-wise as those that make over. Christians in America give about a half percentage-wise what they did during the Great Depression. And Christians in America today give less percentage-wise than Christians in Africa do, where poverty is rampant. The more you get, the more it entangles you. The more you think you've got to have it, the more you're afraid you're going to miss out. Paul says, don't be arrogant about what you have. Don't put your hope on the uncertainty of wealth, but on God. And then he gives us the second thing we need to do. He says, put your hope in God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. First of all, enjoy what God has given you. I'm not trying to make you feel guilty or think, man, I've got to get rid of everything. God has blessed you. Enjoy it. But then he says, instruct them to do what is good to be rich in good works, to be generous and willing to share. You have what you have because you are a tool for blessings of God to be used for people around you. Some of you in this room, God has given you a lot. And the reason he gave you a lot is so that you can bless richly those around you. Some of you in the room, God hasn't given you as much. But what he's given you, he expects you to bless those that are around you. He does a great play on words. He says, be rich in good works. Are you rich in what you're doing for others? Are you rich in how you're treating others? I mean, this is the time of year. This is the time of year when we talk about Giving, Thanksgiving and Christmas. And I mean, you walk out the door today, there's a, um, in the hallway, we've got kids from Madison Creek Elementary, a local elementary school that are in need of help for Christmas. And it's, I always love the response of our church to Operation Christmas Child and helping to get these boxes where they need to go. Not just in the boxes brought here on Sunday morning today, but through this week. I mean, some of you were there Tuesday night when we had 3,000 boxes come in and we didn't have a clue what we were doing, but it looked like we did. We unpacked, tore down boxes, repacked boxes, taped boxes in about, there were like eight different stations that transitioned at all times to different kinds of stations, put them in a show, onto a dolly, took them into a room and stacked from floor to ceiling as much as we could into that room. I love the generosity. Next week, Masons. Over the next couple of weeks, Masons Motel. They're kids that um, part of Masons ministry down there that we do that are going to need to help with Christmas. And there'll be other things that at workplace or where you are, people will talk about this time of year. And we love living generously during this time of year. But the reality is those needs are there year round. And God calls us as a church and calls us as a people and as individuals to give. To give richly. Some people live richly and give a little. God's call on our lives is to live sufficiently with what you got. And to give richly. Luke 6.38 says, Give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. We put into your lap. For the measure you use it will be measured back to you. So what does that look like for us? What does that look like for you and me in the way we live our lives? It means that we are always giving a portion back to the Lord. 
in churches, we often talk about the 10% tithing. That's an Old Testament concept that the New Testament doesn't talk about specifically tithing, but it talks about giving generously. In fact, I would say that in the Old Testament, 10% was the standard, was the kind of the, the floor. In the New Testament, the expectation is because of what Christ has done for us, that would raise. We always are giving a portion. So regularly, weekly offerings, that's how we run the church. But it's also good for your soul. It's how we do ministry. It's how we do ministry here around the world. It's through the offerings that are provided on a weekly basis here. But it's also good for you. It's good for your soul because you are giving as a portion of who you are. But sometimes it means giving as a sacrifice. C.S. Lewis said, the only thing that I can see that can take me away from the grip that finances, money, materialism has on my life is to give until it hurts. To be generous and ready to share. Creating margin in our lives where when things come along we can help. We can jump in. We can provide for people. Where we save. Where we give. Where we live on what's left. In fact, the idea in scripture is in first verse that the first thing you do is you give back to the Lord. Then you save some from later. Then you live on what's left. Some of you are worrying what you need to do is to begin to set goals about what you're going to give, what you're going to save, and how you're going to live. And after you've met that goal, then live it to the max. Enjoy it. The problem for our society is some of us in our society, and especially in kind of American culture that is in a good economy right now, have stretched our dollars as far as they'll go, and we enjoy what we're doing without guilt, it seems. And what's happened is we think that we can't live without those things. But the truth is, we got to a place we could afford some nice things, and now you feel like we have to have them. And what Paul is reminding people here is that those of us that are rich need to give richly. And here's the last thing, the last part he says. This is how he ends. Storing up, that those people that do that, that live generously, that are willing to share, store up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of what is truly life. You see, the reality is that generosity is a great investment. That there's something beyond here. A generous life of investing in things of God, things that are greater, things that are more important. Super generous people don't become generous because they get guilty about it. They sit in here a sermon and they're like, man, I'll be glad when this is over, but I got to start giving more because I feel guilty about it. That's not what super generous people do. They become generous because they have a fundamental shift in their thinking about the, what they're accomplishing with their wealth. Because of the gospel, what Christ has done for us, we don't spend money or we don't depend on money for security. We depend on God for our security. We delight and find our significance in God and who He is and not money. We know God's promises about repaying us in this life or in the life to come. We understand the connection between the way we manage money in this life and what means for eternity. And then we do that. When that begins to happen, money loses its grip on us. Generosity begins to flow from our hearts. And naturally, we begin to be generous people. But most of all, we just are people. Generous people are people who just realize what Jesus has done for them. I was reading this week about a a guy that was one of the founders of a major missionary movement whose name was Zinzendorf. It's a fun name to say. Zinzendorf, right? 
And Zinzendorf grew up in a wealthy family, went to private schools in Europe, some of the best schools in Europe. And while he was growing up as a part of his education in high school, he took tours of several famous European cities and the artwork that was in those cities. And he was in Dusseldorf. And he saw Fetis Eke Homo, which is a picture of Jesus with a crown of thorns on his head. And as he was staring at the crown of thorns with all of his friends from wealthy families on this trip to the major cities of Europe to see the art galleries that are there, he heard a voice come to him that just said, as he stared into the eyes of that picture, All this I did for thee. What doest thou for me? And he said in that moment he discovered something greater in his life than anything he had ever found. The desire to take the gospel of Jesus to the ends of the earth. So here's my question today. How are, how are you at being rich? How good are you? Even when you don't feel like it, none of us ever feel like it. How good are you at being rich? Is that where you're putting your trust? Is that where you're putting your security? Or are you living generously in the midst of it? I'm going to pray and then we're going to have a time of response. And I'll explain that after I pray. But during our time of response, the band's going to come up. They're going to lead us in a time of worship and response. I just want to ask you to respond to the Lord however he leads.